Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today's story, titled Goat for Broke, the inspiring true story of the 442nd Japanese-American Combat Regiment in France during the rescue of the Lost Battalion in World War II, is one of the most inspiring stories I've ever come across. The Japanese-American men who comprised the Army's 442nd Division showed unmatched courage and sacrifice under fire, as if they had something to prove. And they did, earning more than 9,000 Purple Hearts, 6,000 Bronze and Silver Stars, and nearly two dozen Medals of Honor in seven hard-fought campaigns against the Nazis. They fought in seven campaigns in World War II, but are best remembered for rescuing the Lost Battalion, comprised largely of a Texas National Guard unit, which resulted in one of the most heroic ground battles in American history. That Texas unit, the 141st, was trapped deep in the Vosges Forest, near the border of Germany, and surrounded by 6,000 well-entrenched German soldiers who had been ordered not to retreat. This is the story of what was called the Nisai Gopherbrook Battalion, the 142nd Regimental Combat Team, comprised of Japanese-American soldiers and their white officers. They were to become the most highly decorated regiment in U.S. military history for its size and length of service. An important note. All of you are aware of my coverage of Japanese atrocities committed upon our captured Allied troops and civilian nurses by the Army and Naval Forces of Japan during the Second World War. Not to mention what they did to the victims of the countries and islands they occupied. I make no bones about it. It happened. And the world needs to know that Hitler and his Nazis weren't the only bad, really bad players in World War II. In fact, as a prisoner of war, you are much better off in Nazi captivity than in Japanese. But the Japanese Americans who had left Japan to begin a new life here in the States, with few exceptions, were proud Americans who became victims in their own adopted country after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. Fear of more surprise attacks, especially on the West Coast, combined with the idea that all Japanese owed allegiance to their emperor and would sabotage U.S. facilities, was rampant. When the fear subsided and the government came to its senses, they opened up enlistment to Japanese Americans. Many Japanese men, eager to prove their loyalty, volunteered or were drafted into the U.S. Army to fight the Nazis, and they performed their duty exceptionally well. On December 10, 1941, three days after the attack on our naval bases at Pearl Harbor, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sent President Franklin Delano Roosevelt a detailed report illustrating how and where 1,212 Japanese Americans had been arrested during the two days following the Pearl Harbor attack. There was no mention in the report as to why they were being incarcerated. It was assumed that they were suspects due to their country of origin, Japan. Roosevelt was warned by his advisors that these Japanese were American citizens and to be careful not to fall into the trap created by the hysteria that was mounting nationwide as more and more information became available regarding Japan's attacks on Pearl Harbor as well as the Philippines and other countries. Some newspaper columnists were actively campaigning to have all Japanese rounded up and sent away. For example, a West Seattle Herald writer stated, The government should initiate instant and drastic orders sweeping all aliens, foreign and native-born, so far inland that we can forget about them for the duration of the war. U.S. Senator Harley Kilgore seconded that idea when he wrote this to FDR. It is my sincere belief that the Pacific Coast should be declared a military area which will give authority to treat residents, either aliens 
or citizens and camp followers and place them under military law. By February 19 of 1942, FDR signed Executive Order No. 9066 authorizing the incarceration of more than 100,000 Japanese-American citizens, mostly from the West Coast, sending them to desolate internment camps in the wastelands of Arizona, California, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, and Arkansas. Truckloads of plywood, barbed wire, and tar paper were brought in to build the internment camps, while tens of thousands of Japanese-Americans, most of whom had jobs and families and kids in schools, were given just a few weeks' notice to basically liquidate their lives. They had to leave their jobs, give up their homes, pull the kids out of school, and reduce their possessions to a few suitcases. Their only crime was that of having Japanese heritage. We can all understand the panic and fear created by the brutal Japanese attack on the U.S. forces stationed around the world. But there was no middle ground here. There was absolutely no proof that these people were a threat to U.S. security. Within a few months, the west coast of the U.S. was virtually cleared of Japanese-American citizens. By 1943, the war was raging on all fronts, and on February 1st of that year, FDR authorized the creation of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team to be comprised of Japanese soldiers with Caucasian officers. His directive stated that the principle on which this country was founded, and by which it has always been governed, is that Americanism is a matter of mind and heart. Americanism is not, and never was, a matter of race and ancestry. A good American, he said, is one who is always loyal to his country and to the creed of liberty and democracy. Every loyal American citizen should be given an opportunity to serve his country wherever his skills make the greatest contribution. Lofty words from a leader knee-deep in a war in which the outcome was hanging in the balance. The truth is, FDR needed fighting men and the Japanese-Americans were anxious to show their mettle. Army recruiters in Hawaii and on the mainland were tasked with finding 1,500 Japanese-American volunteers. An estimated 10,000 young Japanese-American young men volunteered in Hawaii alone. On the mainland, more than that came forward. Altogether, 4,000 men were chosen for duty with the 442nd. Some were assigned to the U.S. Military Intelligence Service, where their language skills could come in handy. The 100th Division, a part of the 442nd, was comprised mostly of Japanese-Americans from Hawaii, while the 442nd was comprised mostly of Japanese-Americans from the mainland. Men like Jim Okubo, Barney Hajiro, and George Sakato volunteered to fight, not knowing their names would soon become legend in U.S. Army annals. Jim Okubo had been supporting his family working as a salmon fisherman in the Pacific Northwest before attending Western Washington University. His father operated a restaurant while his mother helped out as a midwife in their neighborhood. Jim and his brothers and sisters had pledged allegiance every day in school, but none of that mattered when they ordered to pack up and move to an internment camp came. The family was shipped by rail to Tool Lake, California, where a hastily built prison camp was waiting. Also waiting were food shortages, dust, and sickness. When Jim found out the Army was looking for Japanese-American volunteers, he signed up. He was 23 years old. He went to basic training at Camp Shelby in Mississippi, where he was assigned to Company K, 3rd Battalion, in the 442nd. On June 2, 1944, he arrived in Naples, Italy, joining the 100th Battalion. The 100th had been in battle for nine months and was highly decorated. It was attached to the 442nd as its 1st Battalion equivalent. 
The fighting continued against Germans as the Allied forces advanced up the coast of Italy, one battalion leapfrogging over another, flanking German positions and capturing Surretto, Belvedere, Pastina, Luciano, Sassetta, and Leghorn. The success of this offensive was quickly noticed, and press corps was set to cover the action. One reporter would write, From a curious experiment, the army has received an unexpectedly rich reward. A group of sinewy Oriental soldiers, only one generation removed from a nation that was fighting fanatically against the U.S., was fighting now, just as frantically for it. Barney Hajiro was in the 3rd Battalion, Company I. He was a high school dropout with limited job skills and no ideas about the future when he received his draft notice. He had spent his childhood on a sugar plantation in Hawaii. He was drafted early in 1942 and placed in an engineer unit. He was not allowed to carry a weapon then because he was ethnically Japanese and had been ordered to dig ditches at an airfield when he heard that the 442 was being formed. He jumped at that chance. It was March of 1943. He was given a BAR and taught all of that gun's pros and cons until he became an expert with it. In Italy, he didn't hesitate to put it in action against his German counterparts. After crossing the Arne River, September 6th of 43, the 442nd had been well-bloodied, but had managed to move the Germans 40 miles backwards in retreat. By that time, nearly 25% of the 442nd, more than 1,200 men, had been killed or wounded in less than three months' fighting. The fighting in Italy didn't capture as much headlines as did that of the Africa campaign of the Pacific Naval War, but it was deadly. The Germans were well dug in and occupied all the good defensive ground, including nearly impregnable mountaintops from which their guns could prevent any Allied convoys from moving north. The taking of one of these mountaintop strongholds was the subject of a great movie called The Devil's Brigade, which was the name for the U.S. Army's first special ops unit that ended up taking that mountain, scaling a 1,000-foot cliff in icy conditions to do it. The Devil's Brigade was a joint unit made up of Canadian and American commandos who earned the name of the Black Devils from their German counterparts. By the way, that movie is available at Amazon Prime Video. I've seen it, and it's excellent. I think it's William Holden that stars in it. We'll be doing an episode on that story one of these weeks to come. Jim Okubo and Barney Hajiro were soon joined by George Sakato as replacements from Camp Shelby came pouring in to replace the 1,200 soldiers who were now out of action in Italy. Sakato had grown up in a small railroad town named Colton in Citrus County, east of Los Angeles, at the foot of the San Bernardino Mountains. His parents ran a pool hall and bathhouse, and he seemed to catch every cold and flu bug that went around. The bathhouse was three tubs in a room behind two barber chairs. George, who liked to cut classes, just made it through graduation, working afterwards at a butcher shop. On September 25th, George, Jim, and Barney, along with thousands of others in the 442nd, boarded one of four troop transports in the Naples Harbor. The weather soon turned mean, and nearly all of the occupants spent weeks heaving up their insides, finally landing in Marseille, where they were loaded into boxcars and sent north toward the fighting. What they saw of France was a charred landscape full of mangled vehicles, shattered ox carts, and fields stripped of growing things, a landscape gutted by war. On October 15th of 1944, they re-entered combat, joining the 7th Army's effort to capture two railroad towns, Bruyere and Belmont. As they drove toward the German border, standing in the way of the 442nd were the Vosges Mountains, and a cornered yet powerful and determined German army. They were now only 40 miles from their German border, a 7th Army report would later state, 
Bruyere will long be remembered, for it was the most viciously fought-for town we had encountered in our long march against the Germans. The picturesque little town lay in a valley bordered by four cone-shaped hills that the pragmatic allies had labeled Hills A, B, C, and D. To take Bruyere, the Nisai, which was another name for the Japanese division, had to take the hills. They were under the command of Major General John Dalquist. The 100th Battalion attacked Hill A, the 2nd Battalion attacked Hill B, but after a full day of fighting they had only made 500 yards progress. The Germans had the terrain and the weather on their side. The mountains were more than 1,000 feet high and were covered with tall pines. Fog and thick brush cut visibility to a dozen yard and made the camouflage of the machine gun nests very easy for the Germans. Although it was still autumn, the bitter cold of coming winter was sinking in and an icy rain fell, soaking the men's uniforms, socks, and boots. Artillery barrages and screaming Mimi rockets pounded continuously. Almost every shell the Germans fired burst in the trees, sending hundreds of shell fragments and wood splinters down on the men below, which caused a huge number of deaths and injuries. After three days, the 100th took Hill A and the 2nd took Hill B. The 3rd Battalion routed the Germans out of Bruyere, but the Germans still held Hills C and D. During the fighting to take Hill D, the Germans wounded a soldier from F Company. As the litter-bearers carried him away, the Germans fired on the stretcher, killing the wounded soldier. That infuriated F Company, which rushed up the hill into enemy fire and annihilated the Germans there, taking no prisoners. The fighting down in the little village of Bruyere was intense, door-to-door fighting. In a later interview, the 442nd's James Matsumoto described what the fighting was like. Interviewer, can you describe some of the action that took place? Matsumoto, well, it was a little village set down in a little valley in a wooded area in the French Alps there. It was not too big, but we went in there and really got attacked. I mean, the Germans were in there very strong, and they had their best troops in there. So they, we, fought door to door, every house. We went in one house, out the other house, into another house, and boy, it was a battle. We really lost a lot of men. And when we were approaching that, there was already a lot of fighting, so the other troops were fighting in there. So we went in there and mopped it up. And there were so many people dead on the road that they were using a bulldozer to push them off the road so the trucks could get by. Interviewer. Was that troops from both sides? Matsumoto. From both sides, yes. Interviewer, after having liberated this town, what was the response by the townspeople to see these Asian troops? Matsumoto. I know. They thought Japan had invaded. He laughs at that point. Yeah, they were very happy. They, I guess they put up a monument since then for the 442nd. Fighting continued until the Germans had been routed, finally forming a defensive position around the town of Belmont. It was here that a K-Company soldier shot a German officer and captured a complete set of German defense plans. The day after Bruyere fell, Barney Hajiro was standing sentry duty on an embankment when the ground around him exploded with sniper fire. Rather than dive for cover, Hajiro intentionally drew more fire to his exposed position so that his pals could see where the German fire was coming from. Hajiro managed to shoot two snipers and enabled the unit on his right to eliminate the rest of the German threat. Someone in Hajiro's unit marveled at his bravery, and later jotted down a few notes describing what he had done. A few days later, Hajiro and another soldier had dug in to protect their platoon's right flank. Hearing German voices, they waited quietly. 
Hajira waited until they got close, then stood up and began firing, killing two Germans instantly. It was an eighteen-man patrol. He wounded a third German, then took fifteen prisoners, ordering them to drop their weapons. On October 24th, the 442nd was given a chance to regroup and resupply. They all thought they were going to get a rest, but they were going to be sorely disappointed. We'll return with the story of the Lost Battalion right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. On October 23, 1944, First Lieutenants Martin Higgins and Harry Hobarth had already seen seven straight weeks of battle in eastern France, less than 60 miles from the German border. And it was here that the fighting became the fiercest, the Germans not wanting the American forces to cross the line into their homeland. And they were using the Vosges Mountains defensively to ensure that that crossing would not be easy if it ever came. Higgins was a company commander in 1st Battalion, 141st Regiment, which was made up largely of Texans, all battle-hardened now. The Vosges Mountains ran roughly parallel to the German border and extended about 90 miles. There was no going around them. The one good road through them went through Biffontaine, a well-ravaged village of about 40 buildings which stood at the south end of the ridge. Germans controlled the valley and the roads exiting the valley. A briefing was taking place. Troop movements were being planned and put into action, and Higgins waited for his chance to speak up after he saw a potential problem that would concern the 141. They were going to have very limited ability to maneuver with the current plan to cross the ridge that was being shown on the map. When his opportunity came, he said, If a strong force does not stay close to the first, a gap could form here, which the Germans could use to exploit and surround my unit. Lieutenant Colonel William Byrd, commanding officer then of the 141, answered him tersely, A strong force will follow. Move out. And they moved out. Just the day before, a unit of the 100th Battalion, 442nd Regimental Combat Team, had advanced across part of that same ridge, not far from Higgins's current position. They found the Germans hunkered down behind boulders, in ravines, and in makeshift burrows in the misty morning forest. The men of the 442nd were riding on or following tanks, and if ever an area was primed for an ambush, this was it. The sound of the tanks couldn't be missed. Due to the rough terrain, units became separated, and when that happened, other units were sent to fill in the gaps. The first German shot ricocheted off a tank, and a split second later the forest on both sides which had appeared devoid of enemy, opened up on them. Many men of the 100th Battalion were cut to pieces, but the tanks continued to roll while some men stayed on the tanks firing rapidly, making targets of themselves, giving others a chance to locate the enemy. But the Germans were well protected by the trees, rocks, and brush. The 442nd took a pounding before reaching their objective, Biffontaine. They were advancing on Biffontaine, not considered by many to be a valuable target, but when orders came down from Commanding General Dockwest to attack it, they went. When the 100th reached Biffontaine, the fighting went from house to house, routing Germans out of steeples, cellars, houses, and garden sheds. It was the toughest kind of fighting, because you never knew what you would find when you pushed through a door, opened a garden shed, or went into a cellar. The Germans counterattacked three times, finally isolating forward elements of the 442nd and cutting them off from supplies. So they hunkered down in the cellars of the destroyed buildings for three days while the German loudspeakers ordered them to surrender. But after three days, reinforcements arrived and the fighting continued. The 442nd lost over 100 men in the fighting there. 
There were lots of men in the 442nd wondering if they were being used for cannon fodder by Dahlquist, considering the fact that Biffontaine had little strategic value. But in this war, nearly every unit on the front fighting the Germans was feeling it. Winter uniforms were late in arriving. Some never did. Tanks and men and air support were in short supply. Trench foot was developing from the cold, wet weather, making it very difficult to march, and the Germans seemed to have everything they needed at their disposal. Higgins, with the 141st Texans, knew that the ridge he was ordered to take and cross was going to be deadly. His patrol was part of a much larger advance by the 6th Corps, which had reached the Vosges foothills in late 44. If the 141st could break out of the Vosges to the east, they could drive across the Alsatian Plain and reach the Rhine River. That's the last thing Hitler would allow. Hitler had ordered the Vosges to be kept at all costs. There would be no retreat from there. Your choice as a German soldier was no choice. You would die fighting. Many did surrender after killing as many Americans as they could, and many more still died. On October 24th, the 442nd was granted a rest, and one of the units relieving them was the Texas 141st Regiment, which was comprised of 275 men. They were ordered to occupy two hills outside of Biffontaine, and while making that four-mile march, they were unaware that the Nazis were allowing them to pass through so they could close the net in behind them. The Nazi plan was to attack their rear and seal off any retreat or resupply using landmines and machine gun nests. It was exactly what Higgins had feared would take place. The following day, two other battalions of the 141st tried to break through to link up with Higgins, but were unsuccessful. Higgins sent a 36-man patrol to attempt to break out, but only five of them returned alive. It was now October 26th. General Dahlquist ordered the 442nd's 2nd Division, after only 48 hours of rest, to make a frontal assault on the hill where the Texans were stranded. But his officers argued that the 442nd would be wiped out trying to make a frontal assault, and they proposed trying to outflank the Nazis. The plan that emerged was for the remaining two Texas divisions, as well as the 2nd Division of the 442nd, would attack Hill No. 633, while George Sicato and the others of the 2, 242, would use the same trail that the 141 had taken into the ambush, which was well laden with landmines and German machine gun nests, while the remaining two Texas divisions, the 2nd and 3rd, would flank them. George Sicato, 2nd Division, 442, was having the same thoughts as most of the men in his division. Units of the 442 had been thrown one after another against the Germans, with what seemed to him little apparent regard for the horrific casualties they were taking. Dwindling supplies, mounting casualties, and no reinforcements were taking their toll on the men of the 442. At one point, Sicato had flinched at the bottom of a hill as they followed the trail of the stranded 141, when another soldier detonated a landmine above him. That soldier crumpled to the ground on his remaining leg, and someone screamed, "'Landmines!' Sicato dropped to his knees and crawled up the hill, sticking his knife into the dirt ahead of him with every inch he crawled, praying that he would not hear the clink of his knife hitting steel. Mines detonated in the faces of men not far away from him. At that point he was saying to himself, Oh my God, what am I doing here? I volunteered for this? Later that day, when he ran out of ammunition with no immediate prospect of resupply, he found a machine gun and ammunition at a destroyed German machine gun nest, picking the ammo off the bloated German bodies. They had probably been killed when the 141st had first gone through. He had just enough time to reload the machine gun when he saw more Germans. And suddenly, Sicato, who had been a horrible marksman in training camp, 
found that spraying the enemy left and right worked far better for him than shooting straight ahead at one target. It was now October 28th, and the 442nd was within 1,500 yards of the trapped 141st. On the 29th, the Nisai Battalion Command received word that the Texan situation had become desperate. A platoon of tanks arrived, providing support from its 75mm cannons, but it fell to the 442nd to continue up the hill alone up a steep bluff teeming with Nazis, a hill that was later dubbed as Suicide Hill. Surrounded by Germans on that hill, Lieutenant Higgins had no idea how many Germans had them penned in. The biggest problem the 442nd had, other than terrain and position, was lack of water, food, and ammunition. Higgins resorted his machine gun positions to allow for the widest field of fire, buried his mortars, which were useless due to the thick tree cover, so they wouldn't fall into German hands if they were overrun, and ordered the men to dig foxholes and trenches. And they waited. Meanwhile, George Cicado and the 2nd Division, 442, were stuck in place, unable to cross a trail which was several hundred yards from their objective, which was Hill 617. Gaining high ground there would protect the left flank of their division. But there were five well-hidden German machine gun nests blocking them. On Hill 617, there were dozens of German machine gun emplacements, located in foxholes which were facing down the draw into which the men of the 442nd would be coming. To Cicado, the enemy was invisible. The Germans were experts at camouflage. They had mounded the dirt they had excavated by hand onto the backside of their foxholes to camouflage their silhouettes when firing at Americans. While the men continued to be pinned down, a new commanding officer arrived at the command post, a Major General Edward Brooks, who immediately got to work assessing the situation and started issuing orders. He was a well-respected old-timer who had served in World War I and had been in this situation many times himself. He directed the 442nd to fight due east across Hill 617 toward the surrounded battalion. There would be no more flanking attempts by the 2nd. Furthermore, Colonel Lundquist was able to send his tanks directly forward toward any German roadblocks they encountered and blast a clear path. Reports from the field indicated that there were as many as three enemy roadblocks in place, plus an untold number of strong points. Many would be heavily mined. Finally, the order was to send the remaining infantry of the 141st around both sides of the first roadblock. Brooks wanted an all-out assault. While following Brooks' orders, Division Commander Dahlquist started issuing orders of his own, lambasting his second-in-command, Colonel Lundquist, who commanded the 141st, for not doing more. Dahlquist had only three months' combat experience, and Lundquist had only one month. Neither had the right answers, but Dahlquist was dangerous. The rumor was that he wanted to be the first general to cross over the German border, and he would sacrifice any division to do it. At 11.08 that morning, he ordered a full artillery attack on the enemy in front of the 2nd Battalion. His orders went, quote, Have artillery over target first. Adjust by sound. A forward observer with the 2nd Battalion should be able to do this. End quote. Then he ordered Higgins to fight his way out of his position. At 08.35, the radar operator with Higgins' 141st received the bewildering message that Higgins was to, quote, attack the German rear and break through the roadblock that held his battalion prisoner, end quote. Apparently, whether his men had ammunition or not was never an issue with Dahlquist, nor was the fact that they would be transporting wounded. Higgins would be attacking blind, leading a depleted unit of hungry men with 20 wounded being carried in tow. Higgins no longer had any hope he could break out. The 141's fighting force had lost another 40 men trying. He had no idea how many of them had been captured, how many were wounded, 
or left for dead sprawled across boulders and tree trunks. The situation was desperate. To try to break out in the current condition could easily have meant total slaughter. Lundquist's written summary of this state of affairs by October 26th was as bleak as the constant rain and fog that had draped the rescue mission. Combat efficiency poor. Limited by combat fatigue. Weather and terrain difficulties. Approximately 50% reduction in rifle company strength on position. But what he told Higgins was just this. Strong, friendly force coming. The following three days were days of fog, mist, and more killing. Company K radio man Tim Tazoy's mother, hearing that he had volunteered, had told him, Die if you need to, because you're going to war. But do not bring shame to your country or to your family. He had been raised on the family farm and was an excellent baseball player. He had left Utah State University in his sophomore year to enlist in the Army. Five months of continuous fighting had taught him to trust his instincts. At one point in the fighting, he had approached a small gully. He wrote, I happened to look down, and there in that trench was a German soldier. He looked right at me, and I don't know if he had a gun or not. Maybe ten seconds before that, he was firing at us. But he was hoping that I wouldn't notice him. But when I looked down and saw him, I raised my gun, and he let out a squeal that I still remember. I had presence of mind enough that I didn't want to shoot him in the face, so I put four or five rounds into his chest, hoping that I could kill him right away. Technical Sergeant Charles Henry Coolidge, 2nd Platoon, Company M, 3rd Battalion, 141st Infantry, was one of the men sent by Higgins to try and blast a way out of their trap. He led a section of heavy machine guns supported by one platoon of Company K, and taking a position near Hill 623 on October 24th, went forward with a sergeant of that company to reconnoiter positions for coordinating the fire of light and heavy machine guns. They ran into an enemy force in the woods estimated to be a company of infantry. Sergeant Coolidge, attempting a bluff, called upon them to surrender, whereupon the Germans opened fire. Coolidge wounded two of them with his carbine, then, there being no other officer in command, assumed command. Most of the men with him were new replacements, and this was their first experience under fire. Coolidge, unmindful of the enemy fire being delivered at close range, walked along their position, calming and encouraging his men and directing their fire. The attack was thrown back. All throughout the 24th and 26th, the Germans launched repeated attacks against his position, but each was repulsed thanks to his leadership. On the 27th, the German infantry supported by two tanks made a determined attack upon his position. His area was swept by enemy small arms, machine gun, and tank fire. Sergeant Coolidge armed himself with a bazooka and advanced within 25 yards of the tanks. His bazooka failed to function, so he threw it aside. Securing all the hand grenades he could carry, he crawled forward, inflicting heavy casualties upon the enemy. Finally, it became apparent that the enemy, being in greatly superior force, was going to overrun them. Sergeant Coolidge directed an orderly withdrawal, with himself being the last to leave the position. He was later awarded the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and the Legion of Honor. Attacks and counterattacks continued nonstop through October 25th, 26th, 27th, and 28th. Moss, dirt, rocks, and chunks of wood mixed with metal shrapnel slammed into the foxholes where medic Jim Okubo and fellow soldiers were taking cover. The ground shuddered, trees exploded, and men cried out in pain as shrapnel ripped into their bodies. Cries for medic were heard everywhere, and Okubo, who was a medic, ran to help. Four attempts were made to drop supplies by air, but three of them failed due to weather or inability to make the drop exactly over their location 
and one was ended when friendly fire downed the Thunderbird trying to bring relief. Higgins' men of the 141st, now having spent many days with little sleep, food, or water, in their trenches, not able to take their boots off for fear of never knowing when the attack would come, were developing trench foot, and many of those cases left them barely able to walk. As more fighters went out, more either came back wounded or didn't come back at all. Early in the morning of the 28th, George Chicago and the rest of the 2nd Division, 442, were feeling the cold trying to sap away their strength. A few hundred yards to the south of them, Barney Hajiro and the 3rd Division, 442's companies I and K, woke to enemy fire shelling the forest floor and shattering the trees above their trenches. Most had lain in the trenches all night for fear of getting hit by tree bursts, staying under the lip of the trenches they had dug to avoid the shrapnel. Some even used their helmets as a urinal, pouring the urine out at arm's length away from the trench. The day before, Medic Jim Okubo had stayed busy dragging bleeding men to safety behind trees and down into muddy craters, promising them that they'd be okay and that help would be coming soon. He patched them with wet bandages and left them for stretcher bearers to carry them back to aid stations in ravines. Then he dug in for the night, almost within sight of the Germans. When Company K got to its feet that morning, the men knew there would be no element of surprise. Company K had advanced 100 yards when gunfire erupted. Within minutes, soldiers on both sides were firing from the hip as the two forces blended into a cacophony of gunfire, ricochets, and explosions, accompanied by the cries for medic. Okubo ran toward the first call. After that one, another call. This time, coming from nearer the German line. Was it a trap? His gut told him it was one of his men. He crawled straight toward the Germans, toward where the call was coming from. On his belly, with bullets whistling overhead and slamming into tree roots next to him, directly toward an enemy machine gun nest. He crawled 150 yards until he finally reached his man, who was only now 40 yards from a German machine gun. Okumo shimmied to get himself between the Germans and the wounded soldier to protect him from fire. He applied battle dressings and realized with despair that there was no way to carry the man back except to pick him up and carry him over his shoulders. He did so, carrying the man 150 yards with flying shrapnel all around him. Two grenades narrowly missed him. Miraculously, Okubo made it, laid the man down gently, and then went toward more cries for medic. Another member of Company K, 23-year-old Sergeant Yamashiro, decided to try and take out a German roadblock. This consisted of interlocked stacks of logs which held snipers and machine gun emplacements. Their crossfire was nearly impossible to get around. He set up his squad to cover him and went in alone toward the roadblock. Yamashiro crawled 50 yards, then 75 yards, then 100 yards closer to the roadblock, killing first a sniper, then three more in a machine gun nest. But another nest proved deadly. Thinking his men could cover him, he killed two more Germans in the second nest, but one German remained, and with one shot he killed Yamashito. It was two days past his 23rd birthday. Lieutenant Colonel Dahlquist continued to give move-ahead orders, micromanaging every portion of the 442nd down to platoon level, and the officers, those few who still lived, and those few who dribbled in as replacements, were all aware that Dahlquist was getting them all killed. Dahlquist fired his second-in-command, Lundquist, from 3rd Division 141st, convinced that he wasn't being aggressive enough in getting the 141st out of their trap. He immediately ordered the men of the 141st to crawl, to quote, crawl and run forward. That is the only way to get the enemy to move back. He followed that with orders to Battalion CO 
Colonel Charles Owens, that company commanders should get up front and drive forward. The other half of the 442nd, the 100th Battalion, was in just as bad a shape as the 442nd. The CO there was Lieutenant Colonel Gordon Singles. He called for an afternoon briefing of his regimental commanders and was shocked when only two lieutenants and two sergeants stood before him. He had lost nearly all his frontline officers and his battalion operations officer. A signal officer approached and told him that Dahlquist was on the phone and wanted to talk to him. Singles considered that for a few seconds and then yanked the black connecting wire out of the phone. The message was now clear to Dahlquist and Singles' men, "'Stay out of my way. We have objectives to meet and a mission to be accomplished.' The 405th Fighter Squadron still wasn't giving up trying to get supplies to the beleaguered 141st, which had now been without food for five days. So they tried a new plan. Pack empty fuel tanks and drop them through the forest canopy. The risk of a tank hitting and killing a soldier was now a minor risk as the threat of starvation outweighed that. The 141st had created an arrow in an open patch using any particles of clothing that they could spare, and ten aircraft carrying empty fuel tanks searched for that arrow. Suddenly, in the tree canopy above Higgins's men, branches snapped and a bullet-shaped fuel tank started falling. Others followed. Some broke open at impact. One soldier was killed, incredibly, by a can of cheese that was released like a bullet at the impact of the tank as it hit the ground and exploded. Other tanks buried themselves in the mud, while still others careened off logs and rocks, splitting open. They had been delivered on red parachutes, some of which were still visible at the tops of the trees, visible not only to Higgins's men, but to German spotters. If they saw those red nylon parachutes, they would know Higgins's position. Marines James Comstock and radio man Erwin Bondar took to the trees, climbing up over 100 feet, retrieving the parachutes, while below them, the starving men of the 141st gathered up every scrap of rations that had been dropped and delivered it to a central location in the camp where it was then divvied up for every soldier to have. For the first time in five days, more than 200 men had a small cache of food. At midday of the 29th, companies E and F of the 442 finally reached the top of Hill 617, and now it was the Germans' turn to drive the 242 off the hill. George Cicado dove into a foxhole, hoping for a few seconds to replace a clip in his Thompson submachine gun and at that moment spotted the lead elements of the Germans' counterattack. A German soldier approached Cicado, grenade in hand, and Cicado, knowing his Thompson was empty, drew a German Luger he had taken from a dead German officer a few days before and shot the German, killing him. Then he taped two clips together, giving him a 40-round capacity, and loaded them into his Thompson. He then spotted a line of Germans heading back up the hill. They hadn't spotted him in his foxhole. Not far from Cicado came a fellow Marine, Saburo Tanamachi, who was leading an American squad through the trees and hadn't seen the Germans. At the moment the Germans spotted him, Cicado shouted a warning to his friend. But it was too late. German machine gun fire ripped into Tanamachi. Cicado had known Tanamachi since training, and he was a friend. At that point, Cicado lost it and started running toward the twelve Germans, firing his Tommy gun from his hip, running in a zigzag motion. Several Germans were so unnerved that they dropped their weapons and produced white flags. Cicado had killed twelve, wounded two, and taken four prisoners. The German counterattacked had stopped in its tracks. Once the hill was secure, Cicado walked back to where his friend's body was lying, carefully removed Tanamato's lucky silver dollar, and after the war, gave it to Tanamachi's mother, letting her know her son had died bravely.
At the same time, Cicada was involved in the firefight with the Germans. Colonel Dahlquist had insisted on heading for the front so he could micromanage the movements of the 100th. He met with two officers, one of whom was in the process of spreading out a map on the hood of his jeep when a bullet from a German rifle killed one of them. Dahlquist soon left and began prowling the lines to see what he could stir up. He came across Reserve Company I for the 442nd and ordered them to flank the enemy. Now he was usurping the role of his company commander. He approached Lieutenant O'Hala, his company commander, in order to charge straight up the hill with fixed bayonets. O'Hala, who would later be awarded the Medal of Honor for his bravery prior to this in Italy, asked Dahlquist if he knew what he was saying. His men couldn't survive a charge straight up that hill into German guns in broad daylight. They would be cut to pieces. Then he refused Dahlquist's order. Dahlquist walked away, now on the search for Battalion Commander Persall. He gave the same orders to Persall, who told Dahlquist, in so many words, to pound sand. Dahlquist threatened to have him court-martialed. Persall finally threw down his helmet and ordered the men to follow him up the hill. Had it been anyone but Persall, they wouldn't have gone with him, but when companies I and K saw him take the lead, they fixed their bayonets and followed him, crying, Maki, 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 meaning to our death. Company I's Barney Hajira was one of the first to charge. The Germans were 100 yards in front of him and above him. He was the first to step out of his foxhole into the line of fire. When Dahlquist finally returned to base, apparently shaken mentally if not physically, he ordered an artillery barrage on position 345573, which was, incredibly, Higgins's position. Fortunately, the men in artillery second-checked the location and realized it was the location of Higgins and the 141st. They held their fire and shook their heads. Dahlquist later called Higgins and ordered him to attack, to move forward and fight his way out of the German encirclement. Higgins told him he didn't have enough men and ammunition. No, he wouldn't do it. Later on October 29th, I and K companies of the 442nd received order to fix bayonets, and the two companies rose, firing from the hip, advancing as one, led by the commanding officer. PFC Ichiji Kashiwashi later said, We yelled our heads off and shot the heads off anything that moved. We didn't care anymore. At the sight of this action, the Germans who had just engaged in a 30-minute firefight threw up their arms and fled their positions. About the same time, 3,000 yards to the rear, the E and F companies initiated a pincer movement to outflank the Nazis as planned and attack from behind, while G Company advanced frontally, catching the enemy by surprise. The coordinated action annihilated many of the Germans. On October 30th, all companies, what was left of them, woke up to bone-chilling rain. The 103rd Battalions remained abreast, the 100th on the south side of the logging road, the 3rd on the north. Just yards ahead lay another German roadblock at Col de Hute. The forest was too thick for tanks. The roadblock made of fallen trees and containing snipers and machine gun nests was deadly. Trying to go around it was impossible, as mines prevented that. There were only 55 men left standing now in Lieutenant Gordon Singles Company B. He had only 65 men in A and 72 in Company C, and that count was optimistic, as they still hadn't counted how many men had been lost in last night's bombardment. The 442nd had been averaging about 600 yards per day, fighting for every inch. Higgins in the 171st had about 100 riflemen and a smattering of machine guns remaining. By mid-morning, the advance units of the 442nd discovered that the roadblock had been abandoned. Last night's artillery had been spot on. Company I was down to a handful of men still standing. The scouts leading the Company I soldiers spotted an American communications wire 
and realized instantly that it must have been laid originally by the 171st. Colonel Persall ordered Sergeant Takahashi and nine others to follow it. Sakumoto had the lead. It was now late afternoon on the 30th. Up ahead, Sakumoto saw someone peer out from behind a tree. The face disappeared as quickly as it appeared. He could overhear someone saying, Hey, Hank, there's a guy out there looking at us. Where? Tech Sergeant Edward Guy couldn't be sure what he was looking at from his machine gun position. The man looked small. Then he saw the American insignia on the man's uniform. Guy ran down and met Sakumoto. Sakumoto looked up at Guy. He didn't know what to say. There were no handy quotes available. So he said the first thing that came to his mind. Need any cigarettes? The radio message from the 141st said, Patrol from 442nd here. Tell them that we have them. Approximately 211 soldiers of the Lost Battalion's 275 survived the siege. Many of them were wounded, dehydrated, and battle-weary, but all were grateful to be alive and to have been rescued. Nearly two weeks later, on November 12th, General Dahlquist ordered a review of the 442nd. Seeing only a fraction of the unit assembled, the general admonished the acting regimental commander about troops missing in formation. Where are they? Dahlquist roughly commanded. Lieutenant George Virgil Miller responded, That's all that's left, sir. Between October 14th and October 31st, during the campaigns to liberate Bruyere, Bifontaine, and the Lost Battalion, the 442nd suffered more than 800 casualties. They were deployed again November 13th. Accolades and honors for the 442nd Gopher Broke Combat Team poured in from President Truman on down. They were superb, General George C. Marshall, U.S. Army Chief of Staff, said of the 442nd. They took terrific casualties, and they showed rare courage and tremendous fighting spirit. Among the many recognitions bestowed, five Nisai soldiers received medals of honor for their actions in the Vosges. George Joe Sakato, Barney Hajiro, James Jim Okubo, Robert J. Kuroda, and Joe Nishimoto. In 1962, Texas Governor John Connolly, who would soon after be shot during the Kennedy assassination in Dallas, made them all honorary Texans. The 442nd went on to fight in other campaigns, and was there when Dachau Prison Camp was freed. They were heavily honored, and awards and citations issued during and immediately after World War II were upgraded during the past 30 years as recognition of the bravery of the 442nd and combined 100 regiments were brought to light. The racial injustice factor, magnified by Senator Daniel Inouye, who served with the 442nd, later earning a Medal of Honor for his heroism with the 442nd in Italy, where he lost his arm, served as the media spark and a big motivation on the part of many politicians who wanted to share the limelight, some ostensibly for their own benefit. While the media show was overblown, the sacrifices made by the men of the Nisai battalions cannot be overstated. They earned whatever rewards they received. It should go without saying that all our servicemen and women who have served courageously on the front lines in wartime deserve our undying gratitude, and there are countless stories told and untold of their sacrifices. I regret that I could only tell them one at a time. And we would be remiss if we didn't discuss General Dahlquist's legacy, which is mixed. As the division commander, General Dahlquist's utilization of the 442nd received mixed reviews, chiefly from the unit's officers, who believed that Dahlquist considered their Nisai soldiers to be expendable cannon fodder. 
One side says he used them because they were Japanese, and thus expendable. Another side debates that they had already proved themselves extremely capable in Italy, and that Dahlquist wanted the best at the front of the pack. You are left to decide. Keep in mind that all fighting units need rest. Did they get their equal share with other units? Many say no. Despite examples of ostensibly courageous behavior, some would trim that to example, singular, and foolhardy behavior at that. His decisions were undermined by the failure to tally victories without considerable cost. A particular example was when his aide, Lieutenant Wells Lewis, the eldest son of novelist Sinclair Lewis, was killed while Dahlquist was issuing orders standing in the open near in his jeep during a battle. He exposed his staff officers to danger needlessly, and it might be assumed that he was doing that out of recklessness as he was trying to save his reputation and earn a promotion for showing himself on the front. When Dahlquist ordered the 442nd to take Biffontaine, it was despite the sparsely populated farming town being militarily insignificant, out of the range of artillery and radio contact. In another example, Lieutenant Alan M. Ohata was ordered to charge with his men up the hill toward the enemy, which was dug in and well supplied. Ohata considered the order a certain suicide mission. Despite the threat of court-martial and demotion, he refused, insisting that the men would be better off attacking the position their own way. Was Ohata right, or did he deserve a court-martial? You, with military experience, might have trouble answering that. Taking orders is the law. You don't say screw you if you don't like them. Lieutenant Ohata's Distinguished Service Cross for his actions in Italy as a staff sergeant was ultimately upgraded to the Medal of Honor. On November 12th, General Dockwist ordered the entire 442nd to stand in formation for a recognition and award ceremony. We mentioned this a few moments ago, but it bears repeating. Of the 400 men originally assigned, only 18 surviving members of K Company and 8 surviving members of I Company turned out. Upon reviewing the meager assemblage, Dahlquist became irritated, ignorant of the sacrifices that the unit had made in serving his orders. He demanded of Colonel Virgil R. Miller, I want all your men to stand for this formation. General Dahlquist believed he was being disrespected. Had he not seen the casualties report? Was he not cognizant of their heavy losses? Miller responded simply, That's all of K Company left, sir. Sometime later, while the former commander of the 1st Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Gordon Singles was filling the role of Brigadier General at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, General Dahlquist arrived as part of a review. When he recognized Colonel Singles, he approached him and offered the colonel his hand, saying, Let's let bygones be bygones. It's all water under the bridge, isn't it? In the presence of the entire 3rd Corps, Colonel Singles continued to salute General Dahlquist, but refused to take Dahlquist's hand. During and after the war, the 442nd was repeatedly commemorated for their efforts in the Vosges Mountains. A commissioned painting now hangs in the Pentagon depicting their fight to reach the Lost Battalion. A memorial was erected in Biffontaine by Gerard Henry, later the town's mayor. A monument was established in Bruyere to mark the liberation of that city. At first a narrow road led to the monument, but the road was later widened to accommodate four tour buses and is now named the Avenue of the 442nd Infantry Regiment, in honor of those brave soldiers. As we have said, the 100th-442nd Regimental Combat Team is the most decorated unit for its size and length of service in the history of American warfare. 
the 4,000 men who initially came in April of 1943 had to be replaced nearly 2.5 times. In total, about 14,000 men served. The unit was awarded eight presidential unit citations, five earned in one month. 21 of its members were awarded medals of honor. Members of the 442nd received 18,143 awards in less than two years, including, and we'll note, Sadeo Munamori was the only Japanese-American awarded the Medal of Honor around the time of World War II. The rest were all awarded after. 21 Medals of Honor, the first awarded posthumously to Private First Class Sadeo Munamori for action near Serravezza, Italy, in 1945. 19 were upgraded from other awards in June of 2000. The recipients included Barney F. Hajiro, Mikio Hasemoto, Joe Hayashi, Shizuya Hayashi, Daniel K. Inoue, Yikai Kobashigawa, Robert T. Kuroda, Keoru Moto, Sedeo Munamori, Kiyoshi K. Murinaga, Masato Nakai, Shinye Nakamine, William K. Nakamura, Joe Nishimoto, Alan M. Ohata, James K. Okubo, Yukio Okutsu, Frank H. Ono, Kazuo Otani, George T. Sakato, Ted T. Tenway. Fifty-two Distinguished Service Crosses, including 19 Distinguished Service Crosses which were upgraded to Medals of Honor in June of 2000. One Distinguished Service Medal, 560 Silver Stars, plus 28 Oak Leaf Clusters, for a second award, 22 Legion of Merit medals, 15 Soldiers medals, 400 Bronze Stars plus 1,200 Oak Leaf Clusters for a second award. Some post notes. On October 5, 2010, Congress approved the granting of the Congressional Gold Medal to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the 100th Infantry Battalion, and Nisai serving in the Military Intelligence Service. The Nisai Soldiers of World War II Congressional Gold Medal was collectively presented on November 2, 2011. In 2012, the surviving members of the 442nd were made Chevaliers of the French Legion d'Honneur for their actions contributing to the liberation of France during World War II and their heroic rescue of the Lost Battalion outside of Biffontaine. April 5th is celebrated as National Go for Broke Day in honor of the 442nd's first Medal of Honor recipient, PFC Sadeo Munamori. The Japanese-American Memorial to Patriotism during World War II in Washington, D.C. is a National Park Service site honoring Japanese-American veterans who served in the Military Intelligence Service, 100th Infantry Battalion, 442nd RCT, and other units, as well as the patriotism and endurance of those held in Japanese-American internment camps and detention centers. The Gopher Broke Monument in Little Tokyo, Los Angeles, California, commemorates the Japanese-Americans who served in the United States Army during World War II. The USS Hornet Museum in Alameda, California has a permanent special exhibit honoring the 442nd Infantry Regiment. And lastly, on November 17, 2020, the United States Postal Service announced they would release in 2021 a postage stamp honoring the contributions of Japanese-American soldiers, 33,000 of them altogether, who served in the U.S. Army during World War II following a multi-year nationwide campaign. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we'd also like you to know about other shows, one of which was just launched here at 1001 Stories Network, that one being 
1001 Stories from the Old West, which is now available at Apple, and at this early point, you'll have to search for it on Google to find where it's available on Android. But it's 1001 Stories from the Old West. 1001 Stories from the Old West. We appreciate reviews for 1001 Heroes very much, and it helps new listeners find us. If you have a few minutes and can sit down and give us a review, we would appreciate that very much. We have a few recent reviews we'd like to share with you. First, five stars, one of the best podcasts I've heard. I enjoy every second. It's an engaging style that is enthralling and informative. One suggestion, we pronounce my state of Oregon as Oregon, not Oregon. Down from D. Holden, Apple Podcast U.S., and this one, very impressive, John. I have heard and seen several documentaries done of the Jatloff Pass mystery. However, none have come close to the amount of information John provides. Same goes for the Brady Murphy episodes. John's research is impeccable. Love this podcast. Thanks. That one from Bombastic Bushkin, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, my favorite podcast, five stars. Love this podcast because it always supplements info on historical topics I thought I knew pretty well and brings up new topics to me that typically stirs an interest in knowing more. Thank you for your hard work in creating these great podcasts. Down from Stan BQ, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews. They're greatly appreciated. Also appreciated are our Patreon supporters, who support us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For the price of about one cup of blended coffee each month, you can help 1001 as it moves forward to 2001 Stories. We appreciate our Patreon supporters very, very much. Thank you so much for standing behind us. That's it for this week. We'll return next Sunday night with a brand new episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until then, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.